Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of New Books in Japanese Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I am Jin Lee. With us uh, in today's episode are Dr. Robert Omohan from Litsumeikan University in Japan and Dr. Yuki Ueno from University of Toulouse Jean Joy in France. Their co-edited volume, Sexual Abuse and Education in Japan, in the International Shadows, was recently published through Routledge. This volume discusses Japan's treatment of women, the difficulties that uh, women face when they experience sexual abuse in work and school, as well as the progress of the Me Too movement in Japan. So welcome, Robert and Yuki. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for inviting us. Great to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Before we jump into this very um, inform- informative book, can you just tell us about yourselves? Um, what do you research and teach about? <laughs> Yuki, that you should go ahead okay. first. <laughs> okay. So, okay. So I currently live in France, but I grew up in Japan and spent most of my life in Japan. And as most of Japanese women, I was familiar with any kind of sexual abuse in Japanese society. I met a mentor in college in Osaka in 2009 and started having interest in feminism and gender studies as a research domain. My recent research has been focusing on sexualization of school uniforms and female domination in Japanese society. I'm working as a lecturer in University of Toulouse Jean Jaurès in France from 2019, and I'm teaching Japanese language. I also hold lectures as a dating violence prevention program facilitator from Association Aware in Japan. Thank you, Yuki. How about you, Robert? Yeah, um, I grew up in Ireland. I, I guess you picked up on the accent, maybe, but I've been teaching in Japan since 1998. My doctoral dissertation in 2005 took a masculinity studies approach to focus on the situation for LGBT students and instructors 
in educational context in Japan. I joined Ritsumeikan University's College of International Relations in 2014. I do content-based teaching for language education courses. I teach academic writing skills to global study students here. I'm still interested in sexual identity issues for research and content-based teaching, but since publishing our book, my main research focus is on sexual abuse issues in Japan. Thank you. We have a very uh, internationally migrated crowd here today. (laughs) (laughs) So what prompted you to start this volume project? Well, for me, um, I heard about a Me Too event in Osaka in, in February 2018. I expected to see a huge crowd at the event, but in fact, the audience was small, only around 30 people. So from then on, I was trying to understand why movements like Me Too don't seem to be successful in this particular social context. And as a man, as an outsider, a non-native speaker who can't speak on behalf of women in Japan, I knew it was important to do research and interpret data in collaboration with a Japanese woman. So I was very fortunate to be able to make contact with Yuki and she was willing to work with me on the project. So then it became possible to think about researching this volume for publication. Yuki, would you like to add something? Um, Yeah, uh, just a few things. So I was very happy when Robert accepted me as his co-author because this was a time I actually started writing about Japanese society for the first time in an academic area influenced by Ito Shiori, who is same age as me and is one of the most courageous women. And I was uh, actually I was doing historical social research about Japan at a graduate school in France, knowing that I wanted to confront the society where I live today. But it took me many years to speak up and I knew how difficult it would be. So after a lot of hesitation, I finally decided to change my direction. And two months later, I got an offer for this project. That's amazing. And I definitely want to uh, get back to some of the things that you mentioned. Um, So how is this book structured? So the uh, initial research questions were, is sexual misconduct a widespread social problem in Japan? What sort of public conversations are people having around sexual abuse issues? How are the issues perceived within society and in educational institutions? And we focused on the views of university students and we surveyed 800 of them in total to answer questions like, do university students in Japan have progressive views on sexual harassment? Are they aware of the harm that's caused by sexual abuse? Do they support prevention policies? Do they, in contrast, tend to blame victims rather than perpetrators? So chapters one and two explore these issues for Japanese society and educational context in Japan. Then when we try to answer the question of why is it so difficult for sexual assault survivors to come out of the shadows and pursue justice, we find that there are some factors which have not really been taken into account and Uh, which can be explored through a psychosocial approach. So the following chapters of the book deal with male 
hysteria as a subject position of the nativist right factions. We look at international status anxiety, or ISA. Um, I'll talk about that a bit more later. And retaliation anxiety. These are key background factors that deepen our understanding of the the, um, chilling environment for survivors of sexual abuse. And the final sections consider future possibilities. If Me Too or similar movements are not a good match for the Japanese context, what other approaches might be more helpful? So um, that's basically how the book is is organised. I guess before um, I get to the questions that I've prepared, I should um, probably ask you to give a definition of sexual abuse, because as I recently was um, asked, um, sexual abuse means uh, different levels for different people. And obviously, according to some, I am too woke to um, (laughs) that I define anything as sexual abuse. So in the context of this book, how do you define sexual abuse? I think for the person involved, um, they experience something as abuse. Um, we mentioned in the book, we use the word abuse um, quite um, consciously because it, it brings home the fact that even an action which is done without the intention to abuse might be experienced as um, abusive. Um, so the person has not given consent for that um, experience. I think that might be the the um, the most basic um, element in the definition. And for them, they experience that as um we don't have to use the word traumatic, but certainly it's very disturbing and unwanted and unwelcome, and they feel it's inappropriate. Just that answer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. Um, Yuki, what do you think? Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, as we explained at the beginning of the volume, yeah, uh, actually in Japan we use uh, we use lots of we use. Uh, lots of words to explain sexual abuse, uh, such as sekuhara, uh, the word which is used to uh, for sexual harassment. But when we use sekuhara, uh, it it's not taken seriously. But all the harassment have to be taken seriously, and all the harassment have to be taken as abusing sexual abuse. So. Actually, sexual abuse includes all the kind of harassment, uh, which is based um, based by sex uh, gender bias and and sexual discrimination. Thank you, thank you for uh, clarifying uh, that. Yeah. Now. What's the current general situation in Japan for women who have experienced abuse, sexual abuse and harassment? Um, are they protected? Are they encouraged to seek justice um, or to share their stories? 
Yeah, in the book, we provide the findings from various sources that indicate that there are high levels of abuse and harassment in a wide range of social contexts, but the reporting rates are very low. And even when abuse is reported, the survivors of assault have a tough time gaining justice. Many schools and workplaces only have very minimal programs to raise awareness, to promote safe environments, or to encourage targets of abuse to come forward. Me Too and related movements have helped to change the situation, but not in a fundamental way. The Flower Demo campaign, for example, in major cities around Japan, allows people to come together once a month in a public space and to speak about the traumatic abuse they have suffered. Just being able to tell their story to a sympathetic audience can bring some measure of healing to survivors of abuse. However, the social problem of sexual abuse won't change fundamentally through therapeutic exercises alone. And the flower demo campaign may not have significant impact as few people know about it. In our survey, only 4% of young women were aware of its existence. And the women who speak there usually remain anonymous. They rarely name the perpetrator of abuse and the social impact of the campaign is fairly limited. I think that flower demo is representative of the dominant attitudes and conditions here. Women are given some encouragement to share their stories, but they will not be protected from a backlash if ultra-conservative groups or online misogyny trolls target them. They run a high risk of victim blaming or being labeled as a higaishaburu or fake victim. In terms of protection from sexual harassment more generally, women and girls are not adequately protected in many workplaces, in schools, on public transportation, and so on, and they are not generally encouraged to seek justice. Overarching norms of gender inequality remain fixed, and many perpetrators can continue to abuse. So the general situation is negative in in many ways. Indeed, that's um very that's a very painful truth. I remember reading about um you mentioned Itoshioli earlier. So for our listeners who may not be familiar with this, um Itoshioli um was probably the first um female public figure to public go on record to accuse of um, her abuser, who's also a public figure, and actually actually won in the lawsuit. But like you said, like uh, Yuki, um, the the system cannot really protect her from the backlash. And I was really sad to learn that she can't even she she had to move abroad from all the online abuse. Um, so that's um, that's not very encouraging for other victims. So what might be some of the historical reasons for such silence from these um, victims, survivors? I think the value of our book would be try to, to explain why the backlash is so intense in Japan. I think that's um, one thing that we contribute to the backlash against um, a person like Ito Shiori or when there are apologies for um 
past violence by the Japanese state. So that's just a little segue, sorry to get distracted, but uh, your question, Jenny, I think is about the historical reasons for for the, the, the silence, the enforced silence of, of um, survivors of, of abuse. So we have a, a psychosexual perspective and to interpret um, the history, you could say, we would say that when Japan's ruling elite um, took over in the early years of Meiji, they had this foundational fantasy and it was given state backing in that um, nation state project. It's, it still continues to have influence today. If you look at um, parliamentary debates, military pronouncements from the time, right up until the end of the Asia Pacific War, you have extremists demanding ever more extreme demonstrations of devotion to the emperor. And those extremist groups form new constellations of power after military defeat. But the traumatic wound behind that foundational fantasy has never been healed. So um, there's a hypersensitive kind of fear of being decoded or the nation's masculine identity being decoded. And that's something that affects many issues, including um, the treatment of historical crimes from um, the Asia-Pacific War. So the foundational fantasies of the hard masculinity faction demand the denial of all war crimes. And uh, that includes crimes related to the women who are forced into sexual slavery as former Juguni Anfu or military comfort women. And I'll just mention briefly that in the book, we we always put the terms in quotation marks, comfort women. Um, it, it's a highly problematic, unhelpful term, but that is what we're stuck with in, in academia. So um, we have to use it with that proviso. But in any case, the fixation with depicting comfort women as fake victims has repercussions for survivors of sexual assault today. Even if victims of abuse are not aware of comfort women issues, they are aware of the danger of being labelled a higaishaburu, fake victim. And in the book, we show how the association of ideas between ex-comfort women and fake victims and contemporary women who report sexual assault is still a factor in the silencing of women who have a right to report sexual assault, but they remain in the shadows. And I think a good illustration of how this is relevant still today um, is uh, something that happened in 2020. Um, There were prominent members of the main political party, uh, the LDP, and there was an event there on a program that was looking at Juguniyan through military comfort women issues. And when the issue was under discussion, um, a member of the House of Representatives, Sugita Mio, she made the comment, women can lie as much as they want. Now, she did issue an apology later for saying women can lie as much as they want, but she wasn't censured by her party for the comment. Um, they actually refused to receive a petition against her then when when it came to the LDP headquarters. Um, She is still around. She continues to exert influence as a lawmaker in the Diet. 
and the comment was widely reported so it's part of public discourse so I think it indicated there's a determination there among ultra-conservative groups to depict ex-comfort women as fake victims, to cast doubt on their oral evidence, and that will affect all sexual assault survivors. Um, I think that's something that um, is an important question that we're exploring in the book. Now, in chapter two, um, you focus on sexual abuse in the educational context. Why is it more likely um, that sexual abuse or harassment happen in some educational institutions? How does it work and um, how do the survivors respond to this kind of harassment? Um, if a school or university has policies in place for prevention, awareness, and response, then abuse is less likely because potential perpetrators know that they probably won't, won't get away with it. In a safe environment, everyone knows that once you report abuse, you will be taken seriously and a series of steps will be followed to resolve your case. Unfortunately, that situation is relatively rare. The two, uh, the, the two case studies we provide in Chapter 2 are representative of educational institutions where students do not feel confident that they will be supported or where they find that they are not believed when they go to the student support office. Very often, when they report traumatic responses due to the assault, the only response from medical staff is to prescribe medication. Most educational institutions have not provided a budget for counseling or for the collection of evidence to verify reports of assault. Additionally, in many universities, the main concern is to avoid bad publicity for the institution and to avoid lawsuits from individuals involved. This mentality is lamentable because it means that perpetrators will continue to abuse. Educational institutions have to be proactive in providing resources for prevention, awareness, and response so as to create environments that are as safe as possible. This is a case in Japan as everywhere else. Yes, I completely agree. And um, well, recently something similar happened to some of my friends, and I'm absolutely infuriated by the fact that sometimes universities would rather would would, would protect their own reputation over the I don't know closure for the victims. Um, Robert, uh, do you have anything to add? Yeah, I just would say that in the book, I think we we provide quite a few other examples where it's very clear that the, say, the university in, quen- in question is only interested or seems to be only interested in avoiding negative publicity, and you know that's a very impoverished way to deal with with issues of of sexual abuse. And in your case studies, um, have you found, uh, or the, or in your surveys, have you found um, students? I guess in this case, they're students. Although I imagine there would also be faculty members who go through um, harassment. How do they generally um, respond? Do they seek um, for any kind of support from the university? If they do, what kind of procedure would they take? And I guess how effective would that be? 
I think that if, um, from what I've read that the percentage who do um, actually pursue justice um, is uh, pretty small. Um, certainly most universities at least now have um, procedures in place um, but I don't think there's a very strong commitment to um, proactively making sure that uh, students and faculty are completely aware of what the guidelines and norms are and who they go to and um, as Yuki mentioned earlier, very often the the person they go to maybe is not um, well-trained or well-financed and are not able to do um, as much as really would be necessary to actually help the sexual assault survivor. And um, in our book, it's, it's mainly those negative examples, unfortunately, of people who, who find that... Um, they don't feel, they don't believe they're going to be supported. So our case studies and our um, interview respondents um, brought home that um, reality. Very often they believe they're not going to be supported, so they don't um, actually uh, report the abuse. Or if they do, they don't have a very positive experience. That's quite um, unfortunate. Mm. Um well, okay, moving on to the um, following chapters. In discussing the psychological backgrounds of sexual violence in Japan, you focus first on international status anxiety, which um, I thought was a very um, interesting um, part of the book. So what do you mean by this, and how does it drive sexual violence? Okay, yeah, the, the concept itself is just basically taken from the work of uh, A. Zarakal. I think I'll, I'll probably refer to her again, but just to uh, explain it a little bit then, um, I, I would say that I don't think it's something that's driving sexual violence, but I think um, that it's a type of anxiety and the international status anxiety that creates an environment for sexual, advice, sexual violence to not be taken seriously, for um, perpetrators to be excused, for victims to be blamed or condemned as fake victims. So um, it, it's significant, I think, in preventing women from reporting sexual violence. So international status anxiety, ISA, is this preoccupation with status in the hierarchy of states in the in the global uh, geopolitical system. And Japan was forced into that system um, with unequal, on unequal terms. And I mentioned Zara Call. She says that this situation and the subsequent military defeats Japan experienced left it in this ambiguous space where it doesn't really identify either with East or West. There's a sense of ontological insecurity um, because it doesn't feel accepted or validated in either camp. So the experience of defeat at the end of the Asia-Pacific War intensified this sense, and the ISA still plays a significant role in their in, in Japan's process of identity formation. And one particular aspect that's very unhelpful is the desire to assert Japan's moral superiority 
this means that all the historical crimes, all the past violence is denied by ultra-conservative ideologues. So in the book, we try to show the influence of international status anxiety, ISA, through this survey research. The first survey, 400 university students in 2019, that seemed to reflect very progressive views on sexual abuse issues. But when I spoke about it at a conference, many of the respondents said, no, it's because of the actual context. And yes, when we thought about it, that seems to be accurate, that um, the environment of the survey, it was language education classrooms, English language education, um, English language survey, instructors from the US, the UK, um, from the West, they prompted this sense of anxiety and the desire to align with the discourse of Japan's progressiveness. But that is for Western consumption. Um, We reckon that if you change the environment or context to an everyday Japanese language context, if the survey began with questions that elicit the association of ideas between women who report sexual abuse and fake victims and um, the denial of evidence regarding comfort women, if you elicited those associations at the beginning of the survey, then you would have significantly less progressive results. And in that context, the respondents express international status anxiety by wanting to assert moral superiority through the denial of historical crimes by the Japanese state. And this is what we found in the second survey of 400 university students. That was two years later. Um, In some cases, I would say it was 20% difference um, or close to 30% in some cases. So um, statistically, it was significant. I think that's the key research finding from the book. I guess the next question is more for uh, Robert. But uh, since you examined the role of uh, interpretations of masculinity, so what's the historical context and how uh, the historical context of this masculinity or the misinterpretations of it, and how has it affected the current Japanese society's attitude towards um, sexual violence? Okay, um, when Japan's nation-building project got underway in the late 1800s, there was a lot of anxiety about subordination to Western nations, and this tended to justify their policies of colonial exploitation by labelling foreign cultures as effeminate or lacking in uh, martial militant spirit. And one example of this anxiety um, that was there, and we We have this at the beginning of one of the chapters from an imperial court proclamation. It said, we greatly regret that the uniform of our court has been established following the Chinese custom and it has become exceedingly effeminate in style and character. Now, this kind of statement was a bid for acceptance as co-equals with Western powers. It was signaling to them, we accept your gender discourse as our own. But by specifically stigmatizing court uniforms as Chinese in style, I think the proclamation was signaling to Japan's East Asian neighbors, we are the older brother now. We are at the top of the hierarchy because we are the privileged 
interpreters of our co-equals in the West. So with this um, crystallization of a downgraded identity for Japan's neighbors, um, it also involved a similar downgrading for women's position in society. Misogyny was intensified. Women's right to political agency was removed completely. I think the law in 1900 actually forbade women to meet and engage in political discussion or political action. So in the popular imaginary, women were more starkly segregated into good and bad. Um, The figure of the bad girl was constructed and stigmatized to keep down any women who asserted their, their full humanity. And stigmatization of bad girls also helped to justify a system by which low-income girls and women were forced into a system of civilian sexual slavery. And that's probably the most extreme expression of a, a masculinist desire to control women, control their sexuality. And this still has relevance today. And the scholar um, Yumiko Mikanagi, she traces the evolution of dominant styles of masculinity over time She says right now there's no style of masculinity that has social dominance in Japan. So she doesn't use the term um, hegemonic masculinity here. Um, Right now, she would say it's a time of intense ideological struggle and backlash against previous gains. Um, Feminists have a difficult task because the role of social media platforms has rejuvenated discourses on misogyny, homophobia, ultranationalism and the like. Um, This is something I experienced with my own students. It's only in the past few years, but in in every class in the past few years, there's one or two male students and it's very clear that they are in the bubble, I think, and in what they call the manosphere. And unfortunately, it's um, basically um, ideas that we can call misogynistic or ultranationalist. Um, are coming to the fore. So I, I can see it in myself just interacting with students. Um, so I think there is a, a keener danger now of a revival of the um, most toxic form of masculinity, soldier masculinity from the 1930s and um, war era that explicitly subordinates women to men. It only values men who display militaristic toughness at the service of the emperor and of the nation. So on the level of the psyche, male hysterical subjectivity still seems to permeate the hard masculinity style of extremist groups in this country. The ruling elite is not going to enter into rational discussion on these issues. So other forms of activism need to be found to to avoid inciting a debilitating backlash. And that's, I guess, part of the the reason why we say we need to find alternatives, alternative strategies, because a Me Too approach is probably going to incite such a backlash that in the long term, it's going to be um, counterproductive. That's our argument. Now, Yuki, I would uh, really, I'm, I'm really curious how you uh, view this, um, this kind of interpretation of masculinity from your perspective. 
Um, because so personally, in my own experience in Japan as a female non-Japanese academic, a very junior, not even officially academic, um, I've definitely seen this um, understanding of masculinity being things like, oh, you got to be, um, well, I guess one of them is to be able to drink a lot of alcohol. For some reason, people take that as a sign of masculinity. Or signs like um, be able to boss around your 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 core your female um, colleagues or to to give orders to to make the final decision that kind of things. So Yuki, in your from your own research and maybe your own experience, how do you view this um, interpretation of masculinity and its relationship with? Um, Sexual abuse in education, no institutions. Um, it's complicated because actually, um, I do research in France and I don't see any difference of masculinity created by the society in France and in Japan. So in France as well, they have. They have this masculinity that men has to be like this and men have to be like this as as Japan. But the difference between, for example, between France and Japan is that uh, in France, the society accept less. <laughs> and ja- in Japanese society, support this masculinity. And so that I I think that's a difference. That's a difference between um, between the country where uh, where we think that gender equality is more developed uh, than Japan. So actually, we have we all have this uh, this image of masculinity in all countries, but um, in Japan. We still have this society that, which accept this masculinity, this creation of mas- masculinity, and which um, which support the develop this masculinity. So, um, so that's what I see. Yeah. Yes, um, it's very interesting. I was living in Kyushu um, before I moved here to Tokyo, and it was certainly um, interesting to see the. The, the pride that some of the men take for being mm-hmm. a Kyushu Danji, um, mm-hmm. the, the, the Kyushu masculinity men, I guess. My next question is also for you, Yuki. Um, uh, May I just to... interrupt just one second? Just one second. Yes. I was just going yes, to say um, one other contrast, maybe. I, I would agree with Yuki that probably um, masculinism is as much a problem in, in Western countries like France. Um, as it is in Japan, really, in in many ways. Um, but based on on what we researched and my understanding of what people like Mikanagi are saying, is that in Japan there is a a ruling elite that has inordinate ability to be able to change styles of masculinity at different points in history, and they were basically able to um, impose or make sure that bankara masculinity or soldier masculinity permeated the country at certain times and the danger always 
is, I think still even today, that in particular circumstances or under particular conditions, they could push most men towards a more extreme version of toxic masculinity. And um, that's something to, to be concerned about. Yes, yes, of course. It's, it's, of course, related to our history and everything. So environment creates masculinity and Japanese masculinity. So, yeah, of course. Um, now that uh, you've mentioned, Yuki, you've just mentioned briefly about the Me Too movement. And I think, Robert, you also mentioned that the Me Too movement wasn't, I didn't receive a lot of reaction in Japan which I did not know. Um, it did, I mean, it did have some success. I'm sure you will find many women who'd say it, it had a very positive role in my life and helped me um, to, to deal with sexual abuse um, or maybe at least find a sense of solidarity maybe with some other women. But the numbers are not very big. Um, and one of the issues we deal with, I think, is trying to explain why uh, does that happen? Why, why couldn't it have been... Um, more impactful in society. And the Me Too movement also, um, I think you mentioned in the book, um, towards the later part, later part that it, um, the, there were, there was the Me Too movement and there was this Kutu movement that were influential among younger women in Japan. So how have um, I guess um, we might be, our listeners might be more familiar with the Me Too movement. What about the Kutu movement? What is it? Um, how have these two movements developed in Japan? And I think uh, what I'm most interested in is, have they changed the legal system in Japan in any way? Um, yeah, in recent years, the laws on rape and sexual assault have improved somewhat, but they still don't reflect the fundamental principle that consent should be the key criterion for judgment. Under Japanese law, the fundamental principle is coercion, and providing that the alleged victim was unable to prevent the assault from taking place. And in fact, the focus should be on consent. This is a fundamental change that activists hope to see in the legal system and in society most more broadly, so that sexual partners always seek positive expressions of consent before they engage in any sexual activity. Uh, Me Too has helped to bring that day nearer but its role has been quite limited for reasons we explain in the volume. And the Kutu campaign had a good deal of success for one single issue, rules about footwear in the workplace. Many women have been able to speak out in their workplaces and to get rid of a policy that had them wearing uncomfortable or painful footwear while their male colleagues didn't have that, pro- that problem. But... Um, I think it's worth mentioning a comment from one of our interview participants, Greg, which was, is that all? You know, Mm -hmm. Me Too and its spin-off movements were supposed to hold hundreds of perpetrators of abuse accountable and to turn many workplaces and public spaces into safe environment for women. That never happened. Yes, progress was made on the footwear issue, which is great, but you can understand the reaction. Is that all? 
and our survey of over 200 young Japanese women found that only 46% have ever heard of Me Too, and only 26% had ever heard of Kutu. So campaigns and movements need to reach a much larger demographic slice if they are to have any long-term impact. Now to expand this um, to a larger context, moving forward from the perspectives of this volume and the, the perspectives of your research, what are some potential or, I guess, necessary measures to be taken in order to protect women in Japan from sexual violence or to protect them after it has happened or even to encourage them to speak out against what they've experienced? Hmm. Um, Robert mentioned the case of Itoshiri earlier, and maybe some listeners have read her account of sexual violence in her book, Black Box. Her experience shows what is lacking for survivors of abuse. Very few rape crisis centers, many hospitals and police facilities without kits that can collect the DNA and test blood to obtain evidence of rape and other forms of sexual violence, very few police stations which with trained female police officers who can reduce the trauma level for survivors. In Japan, the term second rape has become widely used to describe the horrendous experiences of many women who are interrogated by police and legal staff who conduct the questioning and examinations in very unhelpful ways. With regard to sexual harassment in workplaces and educational institutions, policymakers need to prioritize budgets that fund programs and permanent structures for raising awareness, for preventing abuse from happening, and for a comprehensive response to all those who are brave enough to report abuse. Additionally, public representatives have to be held accountable when they initiate public conversations that promote victim blamings, victim blaming of women who report sexual assault or that trivialize the actions of the perpetrators. Young men receive the message, you can't control your sexual urges, so it's up to women and girls to avoid inciting your bi- biological urges. That is a terrible message to give boys and young men, and we need comprehensive education programs to shape healthy styles of masculinity among young men. As educators, we know it is essential to provide comprehensive education in sexuality, relationships, and consent issues for young people so that women and girls can study and work without having having to deal with environments of gender harassment or other forms of sexual harassment. In Japan, If Japan adopted these features and if it put the lid on denials of historical crimes of sexual violence, it might just gain the respect and status it hopes for on the international stage. Certainly, the current approaches adopted by ultra-conservative forces are not achieving those goals. And they are not creating safe environments for women and girls. So, uh, so it's time for social transformation, we believe, at least. And let's hope readers find our arguments convincing.
hope so. Robert, would you like to add anything? Yeah, um, um, I would say in recent years, um, anti-feminist groups have succeeded in associating the word victim with victim mentality here in Japan. Um, victims often think it would be better for them to be self-reliant and bear their pain alone without causing trouble for people around them. Um, and extreme uh, right-wing or anti-feminist groups have pushed the notion of the fake victim, Higai Shiburu, that Yuki mentioned, that's been pushed into public consciousness a lot. So the number of cases where women make false reports of sexual abuse is tiny. But in spite of that, many members of the public are deeply suspicious of women who claim sexual assault. And survivors of assault often feel that the onus is on them to prove that they are not fake victims. So we need to recognize this situation and respond to it um, if we are you know, going to change the environment and protect women and girls and, and everybody. It's worth noting also, I think, that um, the determination that's there to ignore historical evidence regarding the system of comfort women, military uh, sexual slavery, also extends to the denial of the system of civilian sexual slavery, which operated legally in Japan until the end of the Asia-Pacific War. And the scholar Caroline Norma shows that the conditions of work for Japanese women in the legalized brothel system um, were conditions of sexual slavery. So activists for comfort women in Japan, Korea, China, and elsewhere could work together to... um, encompass those narratives of those um, women and girls. Maybe that could help to depoliticize the nationalistic fervor associated with comfort women issues in each of these countries and replace it with um, a strong sense of, of solidarity among women. And this might help to undo the stigma associated with comfort women issues in Japan and reduce the fear of being labeled as a fake victim. So um, over the long term, it's just one small part of the solution. We're not saying that this will be the answer, but it it could be one part of the solution to help survivors of of sexual assault to come out of the shadows. One last um, quick question. So throughout your research, um, throughout your survey and interviews, have you found any resources that you might recommend to um, students or even faculty members, um, just people who are going through sexual harassment in educational institutes that they can reach out to? Let me see, because we didn't include some in the appendix. Maybe if I saw some of them. It, there is an appendix that um, includes a few Um, websites, information on support for victims of sexual abuse. Um, I think mainly the the best ones, perhaps, are the most helpful. Um, There's one in Osaka, the Sexual Assault Crisis Healing Intervention Centre. I think the main cities have equivalent types of organisations. They're any of those uh, sexual assault crisis healing 
centers. Unfortunately, they're only in the big cities. They should be in, you know, in smaller towns as well. We give um, a list of the um, harassment guidelines in some universities and any um, university student or high school student has the right to find out and, and get the information so that they know what um, procedures are in place, who they go to for help if anything happens. And um, we include, there's one organization, uh, Chabujo, Flipping the Table Over, and they do a lot of activism against sexual assault. They, they go to uh, universities and schools and talk about domestic violence and sexual violence. Um, I, as I remember, I think the, the the name comes from this stereotypical notion of the, the male patriarchal figure who just in a burst of anger flips the table over and and just expresses his anger and who knows you know how abusive he could be, but they're saying, well, we also have a have a right to flip the table over and be angry and speak out about um the, the kind of abusive um practices we have to put up with. Um, so yeah, you might find some helpful um resources in that appendix at the at the back of the book. And if I can add something, we didn't include in appendix, but um Actually, now schools don't give much education uh, about uh, harassment and violence, dating violence to children uh, at school. But they uh, they started inviting facilitators and program facilitators from outside of schools. And there is one organization um, which is... Um, reliable and which called Avaria so I, I'm one of the member I and you if you go to the website uh, you can have you can um, you can see the list of all the members of the facilitators uh, who are trained uh, in this association and uh, schools and societies can invite the, these facilitators to to give uh, educational programs to uh, from Japan, uh, I think it's from from junior high school to universities so uh, if if any school uh, if you're working if if any listeners are working in schools and if you are thinking of inviting somebody to give educational um, lectures, you can, you can also look at this, in, uh, this association called Aware. Thank you very much. And listeners can find the link in the description of this episode. Well, thank you, Yuki and Robert, for, for your time um, in joining us in this episode today. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to be here with you. Thank you. And for our listeners who want to learn more about sexual abuse and feminist activism in Japan, make sure to check out this new book, Sexual Abuse and Education in Japan in the International Shadows by Robert Omohan and Yuki Ueno. This book is currently available in hardback and ebook. This is Jin Yi Lee from New Books in Japanese Studies. Uh, stay tuned for our next episode.